0: Welcome to the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. This ain't your grandma's podcast. Well, hello, hello. Welcome back to the podcast. I feel like it has been more than two weeks, but I don't think it has been. Anyway, I'm back on the saddle and ready to go. Uh, This week's episode as always, brought to you by 5minutebiblestudy.com. If you have never gone to the link, and I've repeated it 13 times, just go to the link, and if you'll tell me that you went, I'll stop saying this is by 5minutebiblestudy.com. That should be a given, right? Uh, Anyways, today's weekly feature, or podcast feature, is, I've actually already advertised it before, but the How to Study the Bible series is now finished, and I wanted to let you know that it is now finished. So you can go on to the YouTube channel and find the playlist, How to Study the Bible. All 14 episodes are now complete. You can watch from beginning to end. If you haven't delved into it yet at all, I did just release a trailer. It's a three-minute-long trailer where I give highlights from each episode to give you a nice idea of what it's about and hopefully to pique your interest, to wet your whistle, to pull back the bed sheets just a little bit, uh, give you an idea what that's all about. So go check it out. Okay, in today's episode, this is episode 14, and it is titled Bible Study Fallacies, and specifically the either-or fallacy. And you may not have any idea what that is, but I guarantee you that this will be of benefit to you if you'll stick around for the main dish. Before the main dish today, this is more of a traditional episode, so I'm going to give you a Bible story. This is coming from 2 Kings chapter 6, and it's the story about how Elisha's servant's eyes were opened. Miraculously, to see the spiritual world around him, so really cool story, one of my favorites. And then I'm going to give you a little bit of Southern phraseology, that little bit that I've done once before. We're going to give you another impartation of it. And the word of the day is diarrhea. (laughs) I'll explain why we've chosen this word when we get there. And then the main dish, of course, itself, the either-or fallacy. So that's what's coming up. Bible stories next. Okay, let's just get right into the story of Elisha and his servant. If you're reading in your Bible and you were to look at 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8-23, through 23, which is where the verses are contained for this Bible story, then it will call this the blinded Syrians captured. But I prefer to call it Elisha's servant's eyes opened. <laughs> uh, whichever is probably an appropriate title, but we'll just stick with the one that I like, right? Okay, this happens a long time ago in the nation of Israel. And Elisha is the second of the mighty, miracle-working E-prophets. There was Elijah first, and then Elisha was his protégé. And Elisha is now the man. Elijah had, remember, gone into heaven via a flaming chariot, directly uh, transported into the heavenly realm. Elisha saw him witness, and then he went on his way to work many great wonders, greater than his master Elijah. Well, anyway... The king of Syria is now intimidating the nation of Israel, and the um, king of Israel is being informed of the king of Syria's plans that are going on within his inner council chamber— He is able to become aware of this, not because of some spy from the king of Syria's court that comes and rides and delivers messages, but because of the great prophet Elisha, by the power of God, knows what's going on within that inner council chamber in the king of Syria's office, and he then goes and tells the king of Israel, hey, you don't want to go down this road today, because if you go down that road today, you might not ever go down any other road any day, if you catch my drift. Ah, wink, wink. You picking up what I'm putting down? And the king of Israel's is like, yeah, I got gotcha. you. So this keeps happening over and over. And the king of Syria starts asking his servants, which one of you guys is a traitor and a spy? And he's so angry. And... One of his servants knows, obviously, very well uh, the prophet Elisha, and he tells the king, please don't be upset with any of us. It is certainly Elisha the prophet within the land of Israel, and he's over there in the city of Dothan. And if you will capture him and you'll do away with him, then you will have solved your problem, and you won't have any more problems with your plans being uh, upset." And so he gets together a whole force of soldiers, a great army, the Bible says, just to kill one man. And they go galloping off to Dothan. Well, in the city of Dothan, there's, sure enough, Elisha with his servant. And his servant is not as experienced in the might and power of God as he is, obviously. Because when they wake up the next morning the air just feels a little different and the servant walks outside and instead of seeing the sunlight he sees a host of armies surrounding this city and he goes inside and he says oh he can't talk obviously he's just dumbfounded what he's trying to say is elisha wake up there is a huge army outside why are you sleeping and elisha wakes up and he's like oh man no worries Uh, You obviously need a little lesson, don't you? Now, it doesn't say all that. I'm just adding a few little um, ad lib words there. And so anyway, they walk outside, and Elisha lifts his eyes to God and says, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And he's praying to God, praying that God will help his servant to see what he sees, or at least what he is very aware of. And then the Bible says, Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And sure enough, it happens. This huge fiery host of, we can presume, angels... Uh, strike this army with blindness and they don't know where to go, what to do. They certainly can't get Elijah, Elisha, sorry. And so Elisha goes up to the the commander of the army and he says, "If you will follow me, take my hand, follow me, I will take you to the man that you're looking for." Ha, he is the man that they're looking for. But he, they're like, "Oh, okay." And so he leads them into the middle of the city of Samaria. FYI Samaria is the capital city of Israel, and so he leads them directly into the clutches of the king of Israel, the archenemy of Syria. They then have their eyes open miraculously once again, and they find themselves in this plight. And the Bible says, um, the king of Israel actually says to Elisha, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? But Elisha said, You shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you've taken captive with the sword and your bow? Set food and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their matter. And so the king prepared a great feast, they ate and drank, and then the enemy was released. This is a great example, a great lesson to learn about grace and mercy. These people deserved death, but they did not receive what they deserved mercy. And then on top of that, they received grace by being given something that they did not deserve, a feast and protection from death. And anyway, it's just an amazing story. The part that really gets me is when that servant opens his eyes and sees this fiery host. If you can put yourself in his shoes or sandals or maybe he was barefoot, whatever, in his time and just imagine that sight, that is really eye-opening to the spiritual forces that work around us today that are very real. And are the really the plights between our protection from evil, and from an evil standpoint, the uh, lusts and temptations themselves. So I hope that this helps you have a better feel and understanding for the spiritual forces at work every day, and a greater appreciation for the Word of God. Okay, it's time for another bit of Southern phraseology. Uh, last time we talked about the word "own." <laughs> Which is the southern pronunciation of on But this week we're going to talk about the word Diarrhea Uh, This one, I'm not trying to be crude (laughs) I just noticed That this phrase particularly Is Butchered so bad by Some southern people, at least in Tennessee I was at work a while back Uh, I work in the ER part time As I've mentioned on here before And somebody mentioned that they had diarrhea (laughs) And I was like What? Uh, yeah, they said it again, they had uh, diarrhea. And I was like, they, oh my. And I, you know, I metaphorically put my hand on my forehead. Then I go to somebody's house from church, and this lady is from Georgia, and she said the same thing. She said uh, something about diarrhea. <laughs> and I was like, what the? Literally pronouncing diarrhea as diarrhea. Like their rear is dying, they are dying in the rear. <laughs> it, it, it's pretty funny if you've never heard it before. I'm not making this up, this is not a joke. Like, you can't even make this up. This is a true life reporting. Come here for all of your breaking news on southern phraseology. Well, we're back on the main dish. The main dish here we are. <laughs> Uh, I don't know why I started that way. Anyway, okay, this is one I've been thinking about a lot. Uh, a while back, earlier this year, I read a book by D.A. Carson called Exegetical Fallacies. Heard it was a really good book. Turned out it was. It's not really a beginner's read. A lot of it was over my head. But some things I got from it, I feel like I understood, and this was one of them. And then as soon as I learned the either or fallacy, as it's called, I then began to see it all of the time when people would bring stuff up to me. Either they wanted my input on what I thought about this religious meme or what somebody had said on social media or maybe they were posing something to me actually in the context of religion or the Bible or whatever. I kept seeing people commit this same fallacy over and over. And I promise that you have seen it as well. In fact, I've been guilty of committing this Argument fallacy is, uh, several times before, one very recent I can remember, I just know that I've done it on more than one occasion, I'm sure everyone has, but when you become aware of it, then it should help you to, to spot it in your own conversation, in your own um, argumentation. So anyway, I'd like to give you a definition of what it is, so we know what we're working with, and, and then you'll be able to think through it as well, right along with me. Okay, so the either-or fallacy. This is true not just of Bible study, but it certainly applies to Bible study. It's when two possible options are framed as, one, as if they're the only options available for a given situation, or two, as if they are inherently contradictory and incompatible, and you have to choose between one or the other. So either option A or option B because they are just incompatible. Okay, so those are the two different ways that the either-or fallacy can be framed or presented. Um, I'll go through several examples with you in just a minute, but what this argument fallacy does, what it commits that is fallacious, is that there's oftentimes when two options are presented as as the only options, there's oftentimes very truly a third option that's just left off of the table. And a lot of people will do this. Sometimes they just can't see past their own hand, and they don't see the third option available. Okay, so that's just naivety perhaps. That's uh, sincerity just at at a loss. But then other times, people do this deceptively and intentionally when trying to convince others to their position or simply to just win an argument. They will present two options as if these are the only two answers available on the subject matter. Got to choose between one of these. It's kind of like the game. You've heard of the game. You've maybe played it before. The um, Would You Rather. (laughs) And somebody will pose to you like, Would you rather have your right arm cut off? or somebody vomit down your throat and you're like do I have to choose between either one of those and in reality no you don't have to choose between either one of those there's a third option where neither one of those things happen and you live happily ever after (laughs) well this is like playing a really serious game of would you rather and so think of it that way and hopefully that helps you make this a little more digestible okay so I want to go through real quick some cultural examples of how this is used, just so you can see the argument played out in some very common arguments and common slogans and phrases that are thrown around. And then we'll use it to help uh, digest some, some scriptures and how several times scriptures are presented in, in either-or fallacy frameworks. Okay, So let's start off with culture, and I'll give you four. The first one is, and I'm going to phrase these examples as if I am the person proposing the cultural position, the first one being about homosexuality, okay? And the LGBTQ community, which I obviously don't believe is moral and correct and right. So I don't agree with it whenever people say, you either agree with homosexuality or you're a homophobe. Now, people don't phrase it like that typically, but they'll they will typically call another person a homophobe if they don't, just what I said, agree with the, the morality of homosexuality, okay, or transgenderism, or go down the line, whatever we're talking about within the context of LGBTQ+. And this is also summed up, I mean, the same argument is being made whenever people within this community or within this side of the argument, they'll say, I choose love, and that's kind of a slogan for for those in the LGBT community i choose love and what they mean by that is that i love everybody which means that i accept everyone and their gender identity of course except for the people that that are I believe in exclusive uh, binary codes and, and all of that right they don't like they don't love them but anyway they love everybody else so i choose love they'll say and and so the, it's presented as if you either accept homosexuality as good and right and you don't say anything about it or you hate homosexuals and you do not choose love you choose hate like that it's either or it's presented as either one or the other when in fact there is another possibility and this is where the fallacy doesn't see past their hand either naively or I would propose to you most of the time Intentionally, trying to be deceptive, it is truly possible, if you understand the definition of love, that you can believe somebody is wrong, believe something is immoral, and at the same time treat them lovingly, which does not mean I accept you as you are. It means treat them with kindness, appeal to them with kindness and logic, and and uh, keep your cool, and don't snub them, and don't talk about them derogatorily and all that. Don't act as if they're right when they're not. You can't lie to them or yourself. That would just be (laughs) lying. So this either or doesn't leave open the possibility of that last option where, no, I don't agree with you, but no, I'm not going to treat you uh, like a bigot, like I'm a bigot, and um, all that. Now, some people... Sure, they don't believe it's right, and they are homophobes, or they are bigots and all that, but that's not the only option left on the table, right? Okay, let's move on to the next one, and this has to do with Black Lives Matter, which is a pretty touchy subject nowadays. And um, anyways, the phrase itself, Black Lives Matter, and that name for the organization, it was strategically chosen. That name was strategically constructed so as to present the platform as an either-or choice. Like, you either accept all the agendas and all the philosophies embodied in the Black Lives Matter organization, or you must believe that black lives don't matter, right? <laughs> if you were to riot against an organization called Black Lives Matter, then what is seems to be superficially the result? Well, it must mean that you don't believe that all black lives matter. When, when in fact, there is a third option, that you do believe that every single black life matters, which I do. But yet, you do not agree with what that organization stands for. And maybe there's some common ground that you do agree, but by and large, there is a ground that just, I can't stand for it. And that is their association with LGBTQ plus platforms. And uh, also... Their uh, stances on social justice and critical race theory and all the garbage that's filed up in that, which we don't have time to unpack. In fact, I do have a YouTube video where I talk with Mike Hernandez on the subject of social justice in a Christian framework, and we do di- break all that down and unpack it. So you're welcome to watch that on the YouTube channel. But, anyways, just that without going more into that, this is presented as an either or choice where either you support Black Lives Matter or you hate black people, when there is another one where I don't support the organization and yet I don't hate any black people. Okay, there's another example of the either-or fallacy. A third option, and this this goes way back before the previous two, really. Do you believe in God or science? People will say. Do you believe in God or science? It's either God or it's science. When in fact, in reality, you can believe in God and science at the same time. They're not incompatible. There is a third option on the table. People frame it like this purposefully, and maybe sometimes naively, to leave you, if you're caught off guard, to answer the question, if you choose God, that means you do not believe any type of scientific evidence for anything. And if you choose science, then you can't believe in God. They want young, susceptible people to have to answer that question as an either-or, so that they then are confused, right? When there is clearly a third option on the table, in fact, I would propose to you from a Christian standpoint that you cannot believe God without uh, agreeing with the scientific evidence, and the scientific evidence is for creation, and there is no other reasonable conclusion, okay? But we won't go any further into that, I just wanted to address the either-or fallacy presented at least, Okay, and then one more from a cultural issue is, you know, it might be asked the question, do you believe that women should have the right to choose what to do with their body, or are you a woman-hating, bigoted, hairy man? <laughs> I added the part about the hairy man. I've never heard anybody on the uh, pro-choice or pro-life debate bring up the hair or the amount of hair on a man. But anyways, you get the idea. Uh, it's basically you are misogynistic, woman hater or you believe in a woman's right to choose what to do with her body, right? And this actually does a couple of things. First of all, it begs the question by assuming first that it's only the woman's body at stake in the matter of the right to choose abortion or not, when in fact, there is another body inside of you that belongs to you, but it's not your body. In fact, it's a separate human being, even before it comes out of the womb. But that's a whole debate in itself. But beyond that, begging the question, that means to... Assume something without proving it first, okay? That's begging the question. Another fallacy. It then falsely proposes an either-or choice that you either support the woman's right to choose abortion or you hate women and perpetuate their suppression. When, in fact, I do not hate women, and I do not attempt to uh, perpetuate suppression of women in our society, all the while I do believe it's wrong to murder the other body within your belly, That may belong to you, but it's not your body. It's another human being, okay? So there's a third option on the table, but they present this as if there's only these two options. And so make your choice. Obviously, yeah, I'm pretty passionate about these things. (laughs) And there are um, some YouTubers that I like to watch on these issues particularly. that they, they, They talk about the issue in more candid terms. We'll put it that way than what I might find liberty to talk about here. And this really isn't a social platform here. This is not a political platform either, and so I don't want to get any further into that. This is actually a Bible study platform, right? So I wanted you to capture the essence of the either-or fallacy within common cultural arguments that we can now understand it. Hopefully you know exactly what I'm talking about, and we can now jump right into the discussions on Scripture where this same fallacy is used in argumentation, okay? Okay. So I have about four or five examples, and then we'll be done. Oh, actually, I have way- <laughs> I don't know. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I have seven examples, okay? We'll spend a little bit longer on some than others. The first one is, and again, I don't have actual quotes for these. I wish I did, but I've been only compiling these notes for the last two, or three months, so I don't have extensive quotations or anything, but I've heard these a lot. You've heard them a lot, I'm sure. Uh, here's the first one. And that's proposed like this. There's, there is compassionate, loving preaching, or there is harsh, hateful preaching. Okay? You've heard some variation of that, or somebody has has said something that leads to that conclusion, more or less. So compassionate, loving preaching, or harsh, hateful preaching. And on the surface, that sounds like a true you know, presentation of the two options. The problem is really with our definition of love. And I talk about that in other episodes. And if you want me to do a whole podcast on the biblical definition of love, then we can do that. But love is not an emotion. Love is not that which incites emotion. Love is not giving people what they want. Love is doing what is best for the individual, what is in their best interest. And oftentimes that is not what feels good for them in the moment, but it is what is good for their long-term well-being. And sometimes that does not feel good in the moment. Sometimes that requires what Paul tells Timothy to do in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and that is to rebuke. Right? That doesn't feel good in the moment. And that's harsh. That's is harsh. But in fact, that is loving. It's in their best interest if it is called for with the individual. And, and, and to be harsh, which does not even in, imply tone of voice, although it can, harshness can be just captured by the very words you use without taking into consideration tone of voice. But maybe it does, you know, maybe somebody does use a harsh tone of voice and harsh words. Both may be called for. It seems that John the Baptist used both and Jeremiah used both and even Jesus used both. Read Matthew 23. He definitely used harsh words. I would put forth that he used harsh tone of voice very, very likely against the Pharisees and the eight woes that he presents to them there. And so, anyways, the either-or fallacy here is that you have to choose between compassionate and loving preaching or harsh, hateful preaching when there is a third option, and that is harsh, loving preaching. Which, obviously, preaching doesn't always need to be harsh, but to act like if it is ever harsh, then it is always hateful, that's a that's fallacious. And so... There is a third option available, and that is harsh loving preaching, and, and even you could have harsh compassionate loving preaching, could you not? Yeah, absolutely can, and and so it's the idea that both of these things are compatible when they're in fact not, and leaving the third option off the table, okay? And, and you know a lot of these I say there's a third option available. Sometimes there's a fourth and a fifth and a sixth option. I'm just get showing, I'm just proving the fact that there's at least one more option available. And the fallacy is narrowing it down to two, as if they are exclusive to. Okay, let's go on to another one. And this one was a hot topic in the last couple of years more so, and that was a quotation which comes from Hosea chapter six and verse six, where there the prophet says, speaking on the behalf of God, I, speaking of God, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Okay, and this is quoted by Jesus in Matthew chapter twelve, and I think it's verse six. Um, I'm sorry, verse 7, and that's where the disciples had been plucking grain and rubbing it between their hands on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees call them out and have this blow down with Jesus, and then Jesus rebukes the Pharisees by saying, do you not know what this means? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And so, without going into the whole shebang of Matthew chapter 12 and what's going on there and how to reconcile all of this, I'll just simply focus on this phrase, which comes from Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, which we could go back to there and just talk about it within the context of Hosea 6. And the idea, the, the conclusion and interpretation drawn from this is that God is proposing an either-or choice. Either mercy, show mercy to people, or bind the law very strictly. And that's how people are interpreting sacrifice here is keeping the law and binding it strictly okay and so within the context of matthew 12 people interpret that by saying jesus is saying i'm showing mercy to my disciples by allowing them to sin on the sabbath and i'm going to show mercy because of what hosea says or what god says in hosea i i'll use mercy any day over a strict binding of the law in all circumstances and every once in a while you got to bend the rules right like when people are very hungry on the Sabbath. That's how people interpret it. Now, there's a couple of things wrong with this. First, there is a, a little bit of begging the question on what mercy is, and so let's just assume without proving that mercy is how we commonly identify that concept, and that is not giving people what they deserve. But when you go back to H- Isaiah 6 and verse 6 and the Hebrew word for that, it's very difficult to translate into English. And... Psalm chapter 89, verses 1-2, through 2, actually captures very easily, portrays to us, how this word probably better is translated, and I'll put forth to you, is better translated in, the, in this verse, Hosea 6 and Matthew 12. i uh, just read this real quick. Psalm 89, verse 2, For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. And this is the use of, of parallelism. Hebrew synonymous parallelism, where the first line is saying the same thing, synonymous, it's synonymous with the second line. So he says, mercy shall be built up forever. But in the second line, he says, your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. Faithfulness is parallel and synonymous there with mercy. And so the question is, is Jesus, and is Hosea saying, I desire you sometimes to just choose to be more merciful and not bind the law of sacrifice so strictly or would it be better to understand within the modern english i desire faithfulness rather than sacrifices that i didn't even ask for basically or sacrifices to the neglect of the rest of the law even those are two options there okay Nonetheless, the people that interpret this verse this way are presenting it as if Jesus is saying and God's saying it's an either-or choice. Mercy or strict binding of the law. When in fact there's other options available, and that is, first of all, that you've misinterpreted what mercy is, and you're misrepresenting what he means when he says, and not sacrifice. Okay, so it could just be simply, and I believe it does mean, that God is saying, I desire faithfulness to my entire covenant rather than the sacrifices that you choose to offer to me which I either didn't ask for in the first place or I did ask for sacrifices but not to the neglect of the rest of the covenant. you see what he's saying there that would be the idea And to prove this a little further this is seems to be backed up by Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 8 and in this passage, it says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is His delight. The sacrifice of the wicked. The people that are wicked and don't keep God's law and and put their full trust in Him by being faithful to Him in all things, those people, they think that they'll just offer a sacrifice and that'll please God. No. <laughs> it says even their sacrifices are an abomination to the Lord, but those... Uh, who are upright and put faithfulness, give faithfulness to him in all things. Their prayer is a delight. That's what the proverb is teaching. That's what Solomon is teaching there. Jeremiah chapter 7, and we are spending a little bit more time on this one than the others. Don't worry. We won't spend this long on all of them. This is a more difficult one. But in Jeremiah chapter 7 and verses 21 through 26, read this one with me. I'm reading from the New King James, but here it's saying the same thing. I wish that you would rather obey me and cling to my whole covenant rather than just a few sacrifices that you want to kind of substitute for covenant faithfulness in all things. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. Now, hold on real quick. He did command them to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices, right? But obviously not the ones that they're offering and or not to the neglect and as if that's a substitute for full covenant faithfulness right but this is what i commanded them saying obey my voice in all things it's implied and i will be your god and you shall be my people and walk in all the ways there you go that's the key and walk in all the ways that i've commanded you that it may be well with you not some of them but all the ways, including the sacrifices, but, but really all of them, yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. Jumping down to verse 26. Yet they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. And so they offered sacrifices, sure, but they used that as if that's some substitute for keeping the rest of the law and putting all faithfulness in God. No. No, and so there is a third option on the table, and that's that, first of all, this doesn't mean what you think it means, perhaps, and um, the third option on the table is that God is really saying, I would prefer you to keep the whole law, and not just prefer, I require you to be faithfully committed to the whole law and my, my covenant with you, and not just sacrifice, and so here, I don't believe, in Matthew 12, Jesus isn't saying that his disciples broke the law, for one. And he's not uh, acting as if he's going to show him mercy this time, because sometimes you just got to be merciful over and against being a strict binder of the law. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus never broke the law. Jesus never encouraged breaking the law. That's against the very nature of Jesus. If you come to a conclusion in Matthew 12 where Jesus broke the law or he endorsed the breaking of the law for the sake of being merciful, then you misunderstood the passage. That's the only conclusion. Okay, now let's go on to the next scriptural either-or fallacy that people commit sometimes. I heard this one just the other day at a funeral. person that was preaching the funeral, I don't know the guy, um, and he did a pretty good job, I thought, but he said something, and it was for the intention, you know, of the peace of the family, and, and good intentions and all that, but it just represented how many times in death and dying, people say things for comfort, but it's really not accurate biblically what they're saying, and maybe it gives people comfort, but if it's not true, then maybe we shouldn't say it. He said that the person that had died, he said they didn't die, they just moved to another place. Well, no, they did die. James chapter 2 and verse 26 says that when the spirit separates from the body, that's death. And so what that guy was saying is that their spirit moved to another place without their body, because the body was it was in front of us. So yeah, they did die. <laughs> so don't say that they didn't die. Yeah, they died. There's nothing to be afraid of if you're a Christian and have the hope of Jesus in the resurrection of death. No, they died. And their spirit moved to another place. And so without making an argument so much, he was saying something as if it's one or the other. You either die... Or you move to another place. That's what he was implying. And this is an innocent one. There's nothing really serious about this, I don't think. It's just, you know, it's just bearing out the point that this presents it as if those are the only two options. Well, no, there's a third option. And that's where you uh, do die and you go to another place because your spirit and body are two separate entities, right? And yet your spirit cannot be alive, considered alive without your body. Okay, that was an easy one. We'll go on to the next one. This is one that I've heard um, a lot. And I and again, I don't have an exact quote, so I'll just have to give you a made-up quote that pretty well represents the position. It's the idea that you shouldn't fear God because He loves you, and He wants to have a relationship with you. And fear is an unhealthy concept. Love is much more constructive than fear. And so perhaps when, we're, when you're preaching the gospel to people and sharing the gospel, you should teach them to love God and that God loves them as opposed to fear God because God um, will send you to hell. That's the idea. It's the idea that the philosophy of God is a God of wrath and will send you to hell is not healthy. Well, this is an either-or fallacy, and it assumes that fear and love are incompatible. And if it doesn't assume that, at least hints at it. That these two things are incompatible, and therefore there's no third option where both of these coexist within a healthy relationship framework with God, right? But let me read with you a couple of passages where, I mean, you just kind of have to admit that these two things are, in fact, coexist, and they're not in battle. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 28, uh, I'm sorry... <laughs> 12:28 through 29 says this therefore since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire and so he directly correlates fear of God with the fact that God is a wrathful God and that wrath is justified and righteous for the rebellious sins of humanity right there's nothing unholy about it. There is a lot to fear about it. <laughs> because if you just uh, blow God off, then yeah, there's a lot to fear because He's a consuming fire. Serve Him even within your faith with reverence and godly fear. That's not incompatible in any way with 1 John chapter 4 verses 7 through 8, which says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's the same God. The same God of wrath is also a God of love. That's because they're not incompatible. When people talk about these two quality traits as if they are incompatible, they're just simply misrepresenting Scripture. And so if you come to a conclusion where these two things cannot coexist, or maybe you say it would be better to present To people, a God who is a God of love and care and concern, as opposed to a God of wrath, who you should fear. Present them together. There's a third option. It's the option that the Holy Spirit gave. And both should give us a healthy relationship to God if we obey those biblical precedents. Next on the list, moving right along. This one's really uh, a, a lot to unpack here as well. A lot of weight in this one. And that deals with grace. I thought about not even talking about this because I thought, well, we might just need a whole episode just for this. But I'm going to take a whack at it. And and if I confuse you even more, then I'm sorry. But I think what I'm going to do is just tease you. Tease you a little bit. Give you a little bit to munch on, and then you can ask questions about it later. Maybe we'll have a follow-up episode if this teased you enough and cliffhanged you enough. Grace is a free gift, people will say. And that's true, it is a free gift. They'll go on to say, therefore there is absolutely nothing you can do to be saved. Okay? So grace is a free gift, therefore there's absolutely nothing you can do to be saved. Well, there's two fallacies at play here. And it sounds innocent enough, and there are truths within that, very true. But this framework and the way it's phrased presents two fallacies. First of all, we've talked about begging the question, that's where you assume something without proving it first. And, and the assumption here is that just because a gift is free, that there is, there must be no conditions for acceptance or reciprocation where you show appreciation and acceptance of that gift. Okay, Now there's an interesting, really interesting work. I just read this book, one of the best books I've read over the last five years. It's called Gospel Allegiance by Matthew Bates. Some of you have heard me talk about it. I gave a sermon recently called How Faith Lost Its Meaning, which was heavily influenced by that book and that authorship. And the Bible, obviously. But anyways, he in that book interacts a lot with this other book called Paul and the Gift by John Barclay. I think that's the name of it. Um, yeah, here it is. "John uh, Paul and the Gift by John Barclay. Anyway, in this book, and I'm just kind of citing from... Matthew Bates, who is citing from John Barclay. I haven't read John Barclay's book, but he proposes the idea that our 21st century conceptions of grace, and this goes back to the 20th century and perhaps before that, our framework for what grace is and how one responds to the gift of God is very different than Judeo-Christian understandings of what grace was. The Greek word being charis. And that what they understood grace to be as a free gift and what all that allowed for was not what we think of today. And that is what was just presented, that grace is a free gift, therefore absolutely nothing you can do to be saved. So you you, you absolutely do nothing. As an example, I'm not sure that, that they use this example in the book, but here's an example that I will use. If somebody... Were to offer, you know, invite you to a, a let's just say, several thousand dollar party, you know, you're you're just asked to show up, and it's just all free. You know, you come to this tons of food, activities, all sorts of stuff that costs thousands of dollars. Very nice. Maybe a graduation party. I don't know. Maybe a wedding, and you show up with a two liter of Coke. Okay, since I don't drink wine, I don't drink beer and all that. <laughs> I show up with a two liter of Coke, or maybe two two liters of Coke. Maybe I'm really Splurging today. <laughs> and because man, live cokes are so expensive nowadays. Have you tried to? It's crazy. Like the, the little 20 ounces 250 now in the gas station, but we're losing track. Okay, back to the point. So you show up with these two liters of Coke, and you're trying to show your appreciation for being invited to this extravagant feast and ball or whatever. In any way, I mean, in any sense, would anyone look at that and think. Or be able to rationalize in any framework that what you did is you paid them back for what was a free gift until you brought that two (laughs) liter. No. And that's kind of the idea. That's what John Barclay tries to propose from what I understand. And and I, I completely believe we have lost a lot from cultural understandings of first century words. There's a lot to be said of that in the word faith that, We can prove from Scripture and from first-century culture. Um, But also the word charis, grace, or gift. And so the idea that you can do nothing, and that you, let's just say this, you should do nothing, and that grace can in no way be conditioned, or else then it's no longer free, is just simply not true. Jesus said, follow me, and it'll cost you your life, essentially. And what he's saying is grace is a free gift, that'll only cost you your life. Ron quarter told me that one time. I just thought that was brilliant. It totally captures the gospel message of Christ. Grace is a free gift that'll only cost you your life. And the fact that it's going to cost you your life in no way reduces the grace. (laughs) In no way. And in no way gives you the right to boast and say, I earned this. Absolutely not. All of this being an attitude adjustment, Right? But anyways, the either-or fallacy here, without going more into that, is that either grace and no working whatsoever, that's option one. Grace and no working whatsoever, that's option one. Option two is working and no grace whatsoever. So if you have to work at all, then you have completely nullified grace as a being a factor. Well, there's a third option on the, veil, on, on the table and that's presented in the scripture where there is grace and there is work even in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 9 to keep the famous passage that people will quote to show that there's no work whatsoever involved in the grace system he says in verse 10 that for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works after right above where he had said we're saved by grace through faith and not of works lest anyone should boast. He then goes on to say that we were created for good works. Now there's other factors that go into that. Uh, Calvinists will say that the in order for you to do good works, you have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and so that's the doctrine of irresistible grace and so forth. So there's other ways that people will try to explain that, which we're not going to get into that today. That's not the point of this. The point is that this is often presented as an either-or choice when there is more than just two choices, right? Why can't, is there no possibility where grace and work as a condition but not as an earning potential works of faith, that is not works of merit, there's an attitude difference between the two, is there no possibility are all works of the same class is there no distinction between works of faith and works of merit I believe there is Luke 17, verse 10, read that. And is there something intrinsic about all work that makes them incompatible with salvation offered by grace? I don't believe so. When so much Scripture talks about how we're going to be judged according to our works, no. And so the it, it's a, a fallacious to present these two things as your only two options. Very common fallacy. And then finally we'll end with one that's a lot less hairy, <laughs> and that's Jonah now this is the one that I committed recently and it was just shortly after I committed this fallacy and I presented this sermon where I realized yep, I did it thankfully it wasn't highly consequential it wasn't really consequential at all and that's the whole thing of what motivated Jonah to be the jerk that he was <laughs> he was a jerk man, he was a pighead. Uh if you read the book of Jonah yeah, Jonah I don't like the dude And and the problem is that you see in Jonah things you don't like when oftentimes they reveal in yourself things that you shouldn't like about yourself. Well, anyway, Jonah was... Here's the options. And it's presented as either Jonah was racist or he was just deeply patriotic. Okay? Um, That was how it was presented to me initially. Either Jonah was racist against Ninevites or he was... Just deeply patriotic, and that's why he didn't want to go preach to Nineveh. Now let me explain the last one very briefly. The last one being that Nineveh was a rising power who would eventually destroy the nation of Israel, who Jonah was a prophet of. And he knew this. And so that's why he didn't want to preach to the Ninevites, because he knew this nation would destroy his country and countrymen. And so he was, it wasn't that he hated Ninevites, but he was deeply patriotic. And so it's presented, I presented it as it's one of these two options. When in fact, there is a third option possibility that it's neither one of those. And it could just be that Jonah was simply pretentious. Let me explain. He was a Jew, they were Gentiles. And it could have been that Jonah just simply thought that their sins burned hotter than his (laughs) because he was one of the chosen people of God. And they were not. And so their sins burned hotter. Pretension. That's possible that it was that to the exclusion of the other two. Or, and this is the one that I truly believe is very possible, that all three, there's nothing within any one of these options that makes it incompatible with the rest of them. He could have been racist, pretentious, and deeply patriotic all three at the same time. That's That's on the table. That's completely possible. And so that, again, is not highly consequential what position you take, really. It's just about consistency. It's always about staying truthful to the word. And in the whole scheme of things, be aware of this argument fallacy. Don't commit it, ever. It's never good to commit, highly consequential or not. And look for it next time that somebody poses to you two options or says something in a way like, I choose love right? They're accusing you of not choosing love if you don't accept their agenda. So I hope this is helpful. I hope that you see it pop up a lot now because it happens a lot. You just got to be aware of it. It's like when you buy a new car and you didn't see Honda Civics before ever on the road and now they are everywhere. Well, they've always been everywhere. You've just now become alert to it. That's probably what's going to happen to you after if you've listened to this. So I hope this is helpful. That's all I got for you today on The Main Dish. Well, thanks for listening once again on the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. I really enjoyed thinking about this one. It took me weeks to think about. Um, I hope that it, you enjoyed listening to it. If you have any questions, any um, input, you think I was wrong about something. Maybe you thought I said something the wrong way. I didn't try to be pretentious myself. I didn't try to be harsh, <laughs> overly harsh or anything. Maybe I used the wrong tone of voice. Whatever. Maybe you s- thought I just simply said something that was straight up fallacious in its own right. Please reach out to me. Let's have a conversation. Reach out to me through the 5-Minute Bible Study Instagram page, Facebook page. Let's have some real good Bible convo, uh, give and take, iron sharpen iron. Until next time, this is Aaron on 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast.